Hello, what's up? What's up? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ohana, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy. All right. So, a quick reminder of the Patreon page. Um, we are currently doing the retrospective on 2020, where we talk about the films nominated alongside another round for Best International Feature Film, and it's still going. So, we hope be sure to check that out. All right. So, a reminder that. There was no honorary foreign language film award given out in 1953. So after previous week's Gate of Hell, 1954, we are now jumping right into 1952. For this episode, we're going to talk about a film that received the honorary foreign language film award at the 25th Academy Awards. That film is Forbidden Games, or in its original language, Jean Tardy, directed by René Clément. So for a quick summary of the film, it is about um, uh, a young girl named Paulette whose mother and father were killed in a Nazi air raid. And because of that, she wanders around and runs into Michel, um, a young boy in a farm, and they be quickly become close. And together, they were trying to make sense of what is happening in the world with war and chaos um, and coping with death <laughs> as they face death uh, together, especially with uh, Paulette's um, pet dog, which also died. Um, and how, However, their friendship is threatened by um, wartime and the political repercussions of that and how it manifests in the life of Michelle's family and Paulette, who is also already a part of that family. All right, so that's a quick summary of Forbidden Games. So our guest for this episode is from the United States. You have already heard him in the 2000 episode where we talked about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And, you know, the films of 2000, way back in season two. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Um, he's a professor of English, Gender and Sexuality Studies and Film Studies at Northwestern University. And has been writing reviews at nick-davis.com, formerly Nick's Flick Pick since 1998. Um... One of my favorite people in film writing. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, please welcome Nick Davis. Nick, thank you so much for coming back. Um, I am really excited. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. You know, it's been 48 years, so we've got lots to talk about. Yeah, the, the two years in between feels like a lot. So much has happened. And, um, you know, before we were talking about um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and now we're going to talk about... a. French film in the 1950s, so I am very much excited to see how this goes. Um, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? Oh, as you said, uh, nick-davis.com, although that site's been a little dormant lately, but I have been posting things on Letterboxd, um, so you can find links there. Yes, your letterbox gives me so much joy and inspiration and a motivation to look back at films that, like for example, your lovely Detour. I really loved what you wrote about Jerry Maguire. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Like, I when when I was reading it, like the warmth that I felt from Jerry Maguire, it just started dawning on me again. Like, oh my gosh, I like I was trying to pin down why I love that film, and you were just wording it out beautifully. And thank you so much for inspiring oh, me great. always. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, so I, I got to, you know, I feel like you've invited me for two really great winners. So um, you've set me up for success on this podcast. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you kind of said it already. Um, you thought Forbidden Games was great. Um, 
can you expound on that? Why did you think it was great? Um, well, let me ask first, do you also think it's great or where, where are we? Oh, yeah, we're on really? the same page. <laughs> we're on the same page. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I saw it for the first time, I think two or three years ago, it was my partner's birthday and he just wanted to watch something old that he'd never seen before. And, um, my partner lost his mom when he was really young. And so the first scene of the movie, neither of us knew anything that it was about. And <laughs> that was not the movie to watch on his birthday when he's always thinking about how long his mom has been gone. Um, but we were both like, so there was sort of one of those, like, we've made a terrible mistake. And yet we both thought we were watching a really amazing film. So it was nice to see it again in a less emotionally crazy context. Um, I don't know. I, there's so many things I like about it, but some of them are how impressed I am that it is really plausibly a sort of kid's perspective on these events that are going on, but it manages to not be sort of juvenile or naive or reductive in that. And it feels to me like a whole adult, complicated, violent world is transpiring. And yet we're in the kind of soap bubble reality of, of two young kids, like, as you said, kind of, kind of trying to make sense of things, but also just kind of like maybe not trying to make sense of things, like just getting hung up on these compulsive behaviors and, um, you know, any cross anywhere is suddenly exciting to them for reasons they do and don't understand. So I, I like that combination of like the adult's eye and the kid's eye. I think it's photographed incredibly beautifully. I think it's just one of those movies that has like 10 characters in it and maybe only two or three or four you're really going to get to know in depth, but because of where they are in the frame and how they're shot and like the the efficient use of the screen time when the other characters are on, you know, in the film just for bits, you feel like you really understand a lot about the family dynamics and it gets so much done in 90 minutes. My God. So those are, those are some of my excitements about it. What about you? And I was really moved by the film right from the beginning. Um, because of reasons totally not related with the film. Um, I, the music that they use at the beginning, it's a, uh, it's a good guitar arrangement of the melody romance which for some reason was being used in reader dramas when i was a kid so i for oh. that was something that of course it wasn't intended but it brought me back to childhood which prepared me to get into this film which is about childhood and i really i i i love what you said about like the kids perspective that's the first thing that um struck me while it was going on is that how am I gonna call this? It this is in a children's perspective, but it doesn't feel like a children's story. I don't know if that was making sense because yeah. it doesn't feel sanitized. There is a patience on how this story unfolds, despite the very brief runtime. There is a patience on how characters are introduced and how they move within scenes, which is not what I would see usually in what we call like a children's story. There's always um, like a rush or like um, a spoon feeding in terms of information and storytelling. This one felt very patient and very observant. And it's almost not manipulative for me. The mm -hmm. emotions were just um, unfolding as it goes. And their involvement in the war isn't something tangential it doesn't sanitize that part it is a big part but it because it is firmly um, firmly in the perspective of the children even if there are sometimes there are scenes outside of them um 
it's not it's not brutal per se but it gets the emotions right and it's quite mature um for a film that is really about the experience of children and doesn't treat them as um as moving pieces in a story they're really treating them as human beings with complexity like even the quote unquote like simple emotions of kids like sadness and happiness and but um transpire uh, like um what is that like um putting them against dealing with huge things like death and grief oh. mm-hmm. um i don't know it it really moved me on how simple yet multifaceted it was mm-hmm. i agree with all that yeah um why 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 do you think uh that kind of strategy worked on it being you know it is in the perspective of the children how do you think that worked that you know it is in the perspective of the children but the grasp of their world is not childish at all how 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 do you think um do you separate the two in terms of like storytelling i wonder if part of it is because the movie doesn't give itself the task of of showing us war through a child's eye which i think is very difficult i mean there's a couple of movies that have done it really well like i'm thinking of empire of the sun for example but um but after the opening sequence which i think is so distressing and so and even if you're not thinking about you know particularly ukraine right now but there are you know all kinds of places in the world where refugee crises are happening every day all the time um but that that opening sequence is so potent that it gives you everything you need as a viewer about the wartime context and how you know kids aren't aren't dumb and they're not immune to the sense of chaos around them even before their parents get shot right next to them on the road um, which happens in the first like five minutes so we're not giving anything away um and so you see that trauma sort of sink in but then like the fact that so much of the rest of the movie kind of for the two young kid protagonists both is and isn't about those events you know like they're kind of we're watching whatever it means to watch two I don't know. I, I'm guessing she's maybe like five or six and he's maybe like 10 and like whatever it means to watch like two little kids kind of sort of fall in love with each other, but also try to understand like, what does it mean that you're from a city? What does it mean that you live here in the country? Like there's things they don't understand about each other, but, um, and as you said, like death and battle are very much on their minds, but so are the cuteness of animals and the, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And so it, it, it's not asking kids to react to things that you constantly think like, how are they explaining this to these little children actors off screen? Like, or what sense are they making of what's there? Like, it, it feels like everything that happens to them is something that kids that age would be feeling their way through without maybe being totally conscious of it. So it, it does sort of let them be kids without making it seem like kids are blind to what's happening around them, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, with 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 kids, there is this, I don't know, um, It's there's not really a total understanding of everything, but there is a heightened sense of observation. Kids are just very observant. And um, the film really gets... At least emotionally, of course, I don't know how it transpires. Luckily, I don't know how it transpires in real life. 
how kids unpack trauma when it's just them for most of the time. Um, and it's very heart-wrenching because um, there is a cluelessness on how life works or like for them life there is like a simplified view of life mm -hmm. but the film positions itself the, the the direction positions itself in a way that there is a knowledge that they don't understand everything but that doesn't mean that they're stupid yeah there is um i don't know i don't know if it's the, right, the best word but the respect to these characters and their experience and the film tries to capture their experience with as little clutter as possible it's uh it, it's very direct but you know uh, in, in a way it one thing that strikes me is that um it doesn't force emotions mm. but tell me if you agree or not it, it it still feels sentimental sometimes yeah i think those are i think those things are true but it yeah. i also I, I agree with what you said about um I'm already forgetting how you put it, but the sense that like kids don't know that what's happening is happening because of a war that's going to be happening for probably a long time. You know, like that it, it's like you wake up when you're six and like maybe today is the same as yesterday. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a whole different day. You know, like that they're not thinking of this in terms of like broad arcs of trauma. It's just like kind of right what's in front of them, even if they're observant about that. Um, but I, I think the film gets at like what's... Um, observant about kids but also what is sort of self-absorbed about kids you know that like you know like i've seen this scene where michelle is like just kind of you know being an asshole at the dinner table and they're like just get out of here just go upstairs and then his brother's dying and they need somebody to say a prayer and they're like come down here and he's like i thought i was on punishment they're like well not if your brother's dying you know like that he's like oh rad you know like that that he's really sad about his brother dying and also is really excited that he can come downstairs and be with this girl he's all into um, whatever that means when they're that age and be with his family and do something for his brother, even though he can't remember the prayer right now, you know, so like there's all that. Um, you do get the observation of kids, but you don't get them unrealistically, you know, there are movies and novels and plays that turn kids into little adults and that's not what this is. And I also think part of why when, I mean, your question was about how does it avoid manipulation and I'm, I'm, I'm sure for you know, anybody who resists the movie a little bit, maybe some people think it does manipulate a little bit, but I think part of why it doesn't for me is because some of what they're doing is just so weird that you don't really know how to feel about it. And like, you know, the fact that we watch them walk around for like a half hour of the movie, just looking for crosses they can steal off somebody's grave or off an altar or off like somebody's garment when they notice that the priest has a sash that has a cross on it. And she's like, how do we get that? That um, there's so many possible reasons why um you know there's all the death in their life but there's also like she'd never seen a cross before she went into that house and is kind of fascinated why there's such a big deal and it's also something that michelle has taught her and she seems excited about anything she's learning from this boy and um so we don't even know what emotion we would be being manipulated into if we were being manipulated you know it's like um is it sad is it curiosity is it grief like it's kind of all of those things and the film's not telling you um and not least because you mentioned the score and it's like the music is pretty consistent throughout so it's not you know sad when you're supposed to be sad or joyful when you're supposed to be joyful like it's kind of up to you to figure out what emotional frequency you want to be on with 
and even deciding like what counts as a big event or a small event in this movie is kind of hard yeah and also there's a lot of like quote-unquote small moments but they really add up and they those small moments like efficiently give different layers to scenes um the scene where um i think michelle was uh angrily praying uh-huh. for the dead but it, that's what's happening that's the big event but we also see what is happening around and in that moment there's so much being said about um everyone's experience like you know you said you're like there're quite a few characters outside of the two lead children but and as much as the film is centered on those it doesn't In a way, those adults feel like they're shadings of the experience that they're um, they have, um, so it doesn't interrupt the experience, but they add to it. And the film has this way of um, random moments of like processing trauma and death and grief, but for some reason they cohere and they don't. They don't always. Um, clearly point towards something but they add up mm-hmm. yep and the, it, it says about the economy of the storytelling that the film has it's just like there's this lack of pretense that it has it's just very observant about human emotions and uh, aside from the score which is the one that's outside of the film like I, I was thinking um, the music of the film it, it, it sounds very small but you know it, it was sticking out with me um I think the music most of the time gives it gives it the more sentimental side I'm not sure if it always fits it I, I don't think it's very much a distraction but I wonder if the film would have worked better if there was no music at all or it was only isolated in the beginning because the film has these moments where for example um was it Paulette Paulette um, the dog was thrown in the river yeah she was just following it it was a very simple scene in a wide shot but I remember just being my heart was being pierced without even a close up it's just the small movement in the frame of a girl trying to wait for the body of the dog um and then you know because the music is kind of recurring and it just Because I know the music quite well, I'm not sure if the film, if the music always fits in. I'm not saying it's like a, a one that sticks out, but sometimes there, I have a feeling that that is my um, point when they say that the film sometimes tries to just like punch a bit the emotion up. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, but regardless, it. It's an ob- it's an observation more than a, a strong criticism that I had, mm-hmm. because even with that, it is the film remains very pure in what it wants to say. There's also this facet of you know there's a lot of crosses and there's also the priest character. Um, Faith is has a strong um, presence in this film as well. Um, how do you think that figures in into childhood and war? How do you think that aspect of faith kind of comes in and affects our experience of their experience? I mean, I'll say something quick about the music and then I'll answer the question about faith because I agree with you that maybe the the tone or the melody of that score doesn't always feel 
maybe apropos of what we're looking at or or maybe it feels a little sentimental but i i think in terms of it um being so repetitive that there be a way of structuring this story where we feel like we're watching this little girl move through her grief or really change in her like kind of making internal shifts along the way and and getting really happy and then finding out that maybe she will or will not get to stay here and like the fact that the music never changes, I think, is a reminder to us that not that much is budging for her yet. You know, like there's a lot of important events for her um, day to day in this story. But like the big truths of her life are like she hasn't even scratched the surface yet of what this is all going to mean. And so there's something about that and about it being a score that's just one instrument by itself, um, kind of lonely, um, that that even when we're watching a story and watching a bunch of frames that sometimes surround her with a whole bunch of other people, which clearly once she gets used to them is kind of sustaining for her. But the music I think keeps reminding us that she's still just one instrument by herself. And um, the end of the movie will underscore that in its own way. Um, so I like, I like the decisions around the score, even when I'm sometimes not sure, I see what you mean. Um, about the quality of the melody and about the, the faith part. It's hard for me to, um, I don't know, I'd be curious what your thoughts are about faith specifically. I, I was interested almost in like the role of a church, um, even um, not separate from faith because you, you know, you can't separate those things, but that, that the, the priest, the father confessor, um, who's so kind to her when she runs into him in the woods and it's like trying to hide what she's doing and he's so sort of gentle about it and but then he does draw a line with you know you don't even I don't care if you're nine years old or whatever what you're doing is totally infuriating and I have to keep your secret it's my job but I'm not going to keep it forever if um so something about um you know the church being a place where they're getting some ideas about about life and death and faith but also it's a place they have to go on sundays and so they're just scouting out the same stuff they're always scouting out which is where they can steal a, a crucifix or you know, like what's pretty and what they want to talk about even though it's during like the brother's funeral service and the fact that church is kind of a privileged space in the movie but also just one of the you know one of a few environments that their daily lives kind of take them through. And it's a place where like families who hate each other might both show up and both need something from that. And so they sort of set those differences aside, but they also sort of don't, you know? So I, I liked the complexity of it not being the kind of movie where like everybody starts being prim and proper once they have to go to church or that like that religious feeling organizes everything that's kind of messy in the rest of their lives. It doesn't quite do that, which I think is, is interesting, but about faith in particular, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what my reaction is, but what's yours? It, uh, when I was watching the film, it felt like the presence of the faith was a, a way, know, a way for them to try to understand what was happening, or try to at least um, move forward. And you know, with with the presence that with them praying, with them talking about death and the cross, and something that is a presence but doesn't necessarily disrupt our how the story unfolds and I like that again it's another facet that um that the film has in especially during this um story about war and with the kids and with the kids uh, it's interesting because <laughs> um they don't fully understand faith mm -hmm. 
but it's a way for them as well to kind of make sense or like it's just part of their lives you know with like the the praying part i know that it adds to more the portrayal of innocence i guess on how they for maybe for the other people in the story it's either something that it's almost like a burden on Sunday again, or it's something that helps them during the wartime. For them, it's it's just there, and they don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that adds to more, um, more substance to us seeing their experience. They just they're just like sponge, like absorbing everything. Yeah, they don't know how to really sort things out. Like, what is this thing? Why do I need the? Why do we need the cross? Yeah. For the animals, um, I, what you're inter- I'm gonna pray, blah, blah blah blah, angry praying. But it's, it's it's a strong presence in their life that doesn't really derail the film because maybe I've had experiences where faith is almost like a disruptive force and not necessarily in a good way. But Forbidden Games, it's an, another texture mm-hmm. to the world that they have, especially like rural wartime, um probably religious as well um style wise i do feel it's both a dance between the raw and the polished mm. did you ever sense that clash in a negative way or I-, I don't know like did you ever feel like it was existing or and if it was do you think it was something that oh that's that's a choice that's interesting or like hmm not sure about that I mean, I think when you when you have kids and animals <laughs> central oh my gosh. in your movie, you know, like there's a lot. Um, not that there are too many like logistically. I mean, it's not Babe, you know, <laughs> it's not like logistically complicated to keep up with these animals, but many of whom are dead. But uh, I do think there's a way in which there's so much intention about how to frame and where to put the camera and when to move or not move the camera and. Um, levels of lighting contrast that sometimes are the only way we know that the mood has shifted a little bit in the scene or since the last scene. And so that level of polish, even, even around a world that the film does want to kind of propose to us is pretty um, ad hoc or, um, and not just because we're with kids or with animals, but partly. And so, yeah, I guess I would call that a, a interesting tension um, and not, one of the movies kind of set in a largely sort of pastoral space that uses that as a reason to stop framing things carefully or to just kind of go with natural rhythms. Like this is definitely a movie about culture in a pastoral space. Um, and, And it's kind of, it's, I liked seeing it having seen other René Clément movies that are set in more urban spaces, um, or townships and, seeing what it looks like when he's filming the way that he films um, in that kind of bucolic area, I think is an interesting test of his style. Can I ask which Renee Clément films have you seen? I'm not sure if I've seen I know Purple Noon for sure, which is a sort of outlier here, I guess. Um, okay. But um, I'm thinking of, didn't he make Gervais, which we yes. watched for 1956? Uh, yes which i really love a lot and uh-huh. um that i think i had not seen that by the time i saw 
this movie the first time. Um, and that sort of felt like a movie where I thought I was going to kind of know what I was getting in terms of sort of 19th century naturalism in urban spaces and was just really so moved and pulled in by all the tensions and contradictions and surprises in that story, even though it's also kind of going where you think it's going to go. And so like to see that, that's a, that's kind of the movie I have in mind about what it looks like to do all of this in the middle of, um, of, of a, you know, more settled environment, um, as opposed to this one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is a Dreves. Yes. And, um, in 1950, the 1950 episode, we will talk about the walls of Malapaga. So there's that as well. Yeah. I never, um, yeah. you've never seen that? No. Uh, me, me too. <laughs> I'm not, but yeah, I'm very interested in that one. Um, I was researching about his history. Like for now, it's like content. Like now there is a little bit thin on the writings about that film, but at, at the time it was very well regarded. So, and with the humanistic um, approach that Rene Clamont has, that, that he has shown in Forbidden Games, I'm very much looking forward to that. I think it's also about a war, I guess. I'm not Sure. I think so. I don't know that much about it. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like he was one of those directors that was really prominent in a lot of people's minds um, during his career and maybe less so now. And that the Malapaga seems like an example of a movie that, yeah, I've never heard anything about it except in relationship to its Oscar story. So I don't I don't know what its reputation is. That happens in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing I know is that this one is that um, moving away from that. Uh, I'm. I was really struck what you said about the uh, the music adding some structure to the film. I I don't know. Um, maybe I was becoming more formalistic because I was just like it. Also in contrast, I'm. This was 1952. Contrast Hollywood. I don't think at this time I will get a storytelling like this in Hollywood. This very. Um, it's not simplistic. It's it's very simple, and yet it packs a punch. Um, that's a striking thing that I, that I that I see now when I'm watching films for this category, contrasting it with what was coming out of Hollywood at the time, is that Hollywood seems to have this uh, penchant for always bringing up emotions and trying to fit things in a structure. Forbidden Games is an example of how a film contemporary to that, but avoids, I mean, stylistically it has some, but it fundamentally avoids that. There is an appreciation for what are the right words like they have. Like There is a certain grit to it, despite the its depiction of wartime without much very much of the war except the opening mm -hmm. um nothing in this film feels like a spectacle mm. it is very much in touch and very up close with its characters emotionally um even in scenes where we know the kids are clueless about what they're doing there is still this like i don't know emotional proximity that we experience that it just moves us even though the film doesn't It's not a very emotional scene for the kids, but it is for us. Yeah. That consciousness where um, expert blocking camera movement, that I 
struggle with films in Hollywood around the time. And I've said it before as well. Um, for a film that um, was released around the time, it feels, I don't know, very, very mature. And especially for a children's story. Um, that I really loved about Forbidden Games is that um, it doesn't just use this story to tell something. It really tells this story yeah. in what it is. Yeah. And I think there are some, like I'm thinking of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, or even in some respects, The Yearling. Like, I think there were a couple of movies that that reflected, you know, a, a different kind of social attitude that I think we used to, um, I think that in some ways kids were treated more as kids as time has gone on. And that that even in that generation, when my, you know, it's right before my parents would have been, my, my parents would have been two when Forbidden Games came out and they would have not quite yet been born when, when the movies I just mentioned from the mid forties came out, which are, I think were not typical of how children were usually represented on screen. But I, I think that you can find some American movies that before the kind of cult of childhood, we have to grant people a childhood and don't teach them things and just let kids be kids. Like that all kind of increased a little bit over time. Um, so you can see examples of what you're talking about, but I think there are some American films that could be corollaries, but I'm also just as much struck by how, you know, this movie comes out right before all the French new wave directors are so impatient with like, why is the French film industry totally about these, these 19th century opulent period dramas that are often adapted from things that have been adapted before. And we need to get away from all this artifice and, and sort of, um, you know, predictable acting and and tell stories that are a little more relevant. And so like the break from from a lot of French film at the time, and again, painting in broad strokes, there's exceptions, but um, that, that um, and even for a national cinema like France's where there had been a lot of room for naturalism and pastoralism, and um, that's not entirely new, but as a way to, um, I don't know what the new wave folks had to say about this movie or if it was included in their critique of everything that had been happening before they showed up on the scene, but it feels like it's reclaiming an actual, I think what you're kind of naming as an authentic experience that feels organic to these characters that's not given to us in some kind of preset template of a genre or of a, a settled point of view or um, a kind of classical storytelling tradition. I don't. I don't think it's really any of those things. Which, I, it seems like that could be responsible for why it was such a sensation everywhere it played. And it's interesting when you mentioned about the French New Wave because I kind of noted here that Forbidden Games kind of echoes Italian neorealism. Of course, not totally, but that investment in small moments and how they really represent high stakes drama. Yeah. Yeah, it's of course. I, of course, I don't know <laughs> how if there was ever a connection, but I, it was interesting because around the time, you know, we were also gonna discuss one from from the Italian neorealism later. Um, I think that was, that was earlier, right? Before the it came before the French New Wave. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just interesting that from France, I, I did see this and in the retelling of a, a war, a wartime story. Um, there's this added more um, authenticity, like more emotionally than what. Um, this is obviously like an anti-war film, 
right? Yeah. How do you think this fares as an anti-war film? Well, I mean, in some ways, like there's a lot to say about how you how you express with some thought and some sophistication and anti-war sentiment. And then another way, it's like war shouldn't happen. <laughs> like this is this is terrible. Um, look what this does to people's lives. Um, and look what, you know, there's a way in which you can leave this film just understanding that you have been witness to the childhood of somebody who at some point, hopefully, you know, with any luck, will be 30 or 40 and 60. And people may or may not know that this was um, what her early years were like. And, and the ending of the movie really makes you think about what her life will look like after this. Um, and so just from the standpoint of like, I'm all for a movie that really digs into the causes and the hypocrisies and the fallouts of war, but I'm also here for a movie that in the first five minutes is like, what, what more do we need to say? This is, this is brutal. Um, and there's a huge long caravan of people who are all going to have their own particular experiences of the violence and displacement um, that we're watching one version of, um, which is a pretty economical way to make sure this is a story about two kids that's always part of a larger panorama that got introduced to us pretty early. I, I, I totally agree in the sense that I think a lot of the anti-war films that I've seen kind of has to show the war for us to understand that it's bad. With this one, it is so effective because it follows and exposes the cost of war by actually avoiding the war, except at the beginning. You said a while ago, it was just the context that the film needed for us to understand the emotional journey afterwards. But it is so effective because it is so, in a way, so ordinary. It didn't have to be the big human cost, but this um, story of two kids who, in, in the grander scheme of things in war, like, like let's be honest, they kind of don't matter in terms of like the political all overtones, but there's that's the real cost, like, the tangible cost of war. And with the film not only using that as a way to tell you know this message of anti-war but really focuses on that and uses that that gives me more i don't know it, it just feels closer and that ending that ending is really oh you go ahead what do you think of that ending um It's a hard ending to talk about. I mean, not just because we, you know, people may want to not know it, but um, but one of the things I find really challenging about that ending is how it reminds us how young she still is and how she thinks that anybody named Michelle is maybe her Michelle and is way too young to be. Um, you know, making any kind of informed choice about what it means to stay in this, where she is in the final scene, which is not suggesting that things are going to go great for her, but it's not going to go great for her to run away from it either and go who knows where. And 
she's still confused about all the things that a six-year-old would be confused about. And like this relatively um, compassionate time that she's experienced with this family hasn't, there's no way it could have changed all of that or, or fixed it in the amount of time that they had. So I think it's just a, a kind of needed reminder that this is not one of those stories about like, you know, the transformative power of a few weeks or however long we're at the farm, I don't actually know. Um, and that she's still in the same situation she was in when the movie started. Yeah, and it's it's powerful in how it feels open-ended. Yeah. Um, it, it, I don't even know if brutal is the right word. Maybe brutal for us. Maybe brutal for the kid as well, but there's just it packs so much power on how it just, you know, is it mistaken identity? It is actually a false hope. Is it really hope? Then we move away from her. And that final shot, is it spoiler alerts? <laughs> and it's funny. Yeah. But um, I had to, I had to replay the ending to process my emotions because I wasn't prepared on how it, just ended yeah and for everything that the film went through you know small moments music big uh, opening sequence to end it in the way that it's both big it, it is big you know, it, it was a big moment that in the end kind of like visually dwarfs her experience mm-hmm it's even more piercing because we we go back to the reality that in the grander scheme of things in the war, her story might not matter. But that we followed the whole time and we know it matters. Yeah. It, it's a visual representation that it's just like I'm processing in real time right now because I didn't know how to word it out. It was to... Remembering that scene alone visually just starts to like weigh on me like in my chest right now but more the more i say it I'm like oh yeah it's it is in full consistency with what the film was talking about how there's no such thing as a small story in war and these kids they might be you know sidelined in war because you know they weren't fighting in war they're if they ever died they're just like you know the cost of the war but through that big opening, very laser focused middle, and then that ending again, it just you know brings the film into a whole, um, full circle of um, the impact of war to kids, and you don't need um you know you don't need any more messaging than that. That 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 is how you tell it. it that's the power. You don't need to word it out. It's it, it's a haunt. It's a haunting. Yeah, and uh, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, and I would I think of it too as the movie starts with what a relatively organized scene of human displacement looks like during war, as so many people are traveling on the same route in the same direction. It's not actually organized. None of those people know what's going to happen when they get wherever they think they're going, which they may or may not know where they're going. Um, But that's as um, 
systematic as it gets. And then we end the movie with a kind of completely disorganized human displacement and not just her, but the, the, you know, borderline chaos of the whole facility, but especially with her that who knows where she's going. Um, and she definitely doesn't know. And like, and it could include she's caught right outside and somebody brings her right back in, you know, the, the Red Cross Center, like, you know, we just don't know anything, but, um, but she is completely, you know, prone to whatever the accidental currents of the world are going to be after this. And, and so I think, again, you know, not to belabor the point, but as we're watching this mass of migration, um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people from Ukraine into Europe and seeing the, how already chaotic that is and how already destructive that is. And, and that's even before um, all those hundreds of thousands of stories start dispersing, you know, and that, that people are often left to their own devices or, you know, as you make that shift from like, I don't actually know where I'm going or what I'm doing or what I can expect and that that's not just for kids. Um, so I think the movie captures that pretty strongly in a way that an adult can also fully relate to. Yeah, it is a very, in how it, it's specific, it got like a children's story became very universal and not like in a, in a broad way, but in a really emotional, it's very emotionally universal. And, you know, um, what a week we've just had, um, with what's going on. We, we, currently we are recording like first week of March and, uh, that's what's happening. And as for me, well, that's happening um, within one week, I've seen a uh, night in fog and this and like wow. yeah, no, no wars. No, at this point, like no, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's not do that. Um, Ouch. Also, yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> this podcast. Um, but also like a quick shout out to George. Bu- shout out like they're not listening to me, but George Bujoli and Bridget Fossey as Paulette and Michelle, Michelle and Paulette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, really wonderful performers. Um, in the central lead uh, lead performances. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the actor who plays her father in the first sequence is also named Fosse, so I'm assuming that's her actual father. But like, just imagine that. I mean, like, I I, I guess it makes it easier if your dad is there to help you through what you're about to film. But it also seems like it'd be so horrifying at like that young age to film your dad in that circumstance. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But there was a lot, a lot of expectation on those kids in those roles. Yeah, they wouldn't know, but after watching the film, like, why did you do that to me? No, I know. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add to Forbidden Games? Um, I don't know that I have more that needs saying right now, except just that, like, as I watched more movies, it was clear how many compelling films were released this year and how hard it would be to just pick one out, you know, for an honor like this. Although seeing that it won Venice over most of the movies that I also watched and seeing what a hit it was all over the world and seeing how it got, you know, more nominations at another Oscars later because people still were gripped by it. Like, um, I kind of understand all that. Like I, I, I saw a couple of things that were really excellent. So I don't know how I would choose among them, but this just seems like a, a really great choice. If, if your task as the Academy is to anoint one movie, um, 
especially in a year where like most of the best picture lineup was so fucking stupid like that this was a real crown jewel that <laughs> um i wish we'd already been in the era when we were thinking more expansively about how the main category main categories don't have to be i'm making quote marks listeners can't see that um but that why not just give it best picture you know or at least put it in that mix but you know whatever we weren't doing that yet but this is something that the 1952 oscars can look on with pride and i'm not sure that i would there's a whole lot more reason for pride in the 1952 Oscars. Let's say that. Oh my gosh. And with that, I am so looking forward to the next half. But before we get to that, that is Forbidden Games. All right, so just a quick context to Forbidden Games, since there's no really like one journey to the Oscars anymore. Um, Forbidden Games was released in France in May 9, and then it was released in Italy at Venice Film Festival in August 31. 1952, where it won the Golden Lion, and then um, it I think it was first screened in the United States in December 8, 1952, um, and Forbidden Games was also nominated two years after for Best Writing Motion Picture Story for writer François Boyer, and at the BAFTAs it wa- it won Best from from any source in 1953. And then a National Board of Review top four in films of 52. New York Film Critics Circle, 1952, best foreign language film. And yeah, so because there are no other nominees, we're just going to jump into some of the films um, from world cinema that um, that were released in 1952. And let's see what options did the Academy have. Um, this is... I'm quite excited. I didn't realize how exciting it is once there are no nominees because there's so much. Um, So what was your favorite thing that you watched? My favorite out of the films that I've seen, aside from Forbidden Games, was Ikiru. Mm -hmm. It is directed by Akira Kurosawa from Japan. It is about um, a, a man who works in a government office who... Discovers he has terminal cancer. That's not a spoiler. That's a that's the beginning of the film, and how he tries to find meaning in his life after that uh, diagnosis. Um, when was the last time you've seen it? I bet like ten years ago. It's been a while. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I think I should have seen this in film school. So I hope no one from film school is listening to this. Um, but um, I just found it to be very moving in the same way that uh, Forbidden Games was 
because on how multifaceted it was. I ha- because the first the the thing that was stuck in my mind was that scene um, on the swing, where um, you know that scene in the swing, that iconic shot. I was already preparing myself for something very melancholic, and it, it was it was very melancholic. It is very reflective of um, how what how does one see life when he or she is near death. But it's also very interested in other characters aside from that character. And it makes the, um, the experience of facing death even more layered is that. Uh, and there's also moments of um, levity with, you know, in the context of the film, not necessarily the film trying to be funny. It, it surprised me because even if it was going, it was changing perspectives, you know, or like scenes have different perspectives. They don't feel like they steer or like they detour from the main story, and it just it feels very cohesive, and it's it is quite touching, and also like Forbidden Games, not in a manipulative way. It's just about observing human behavior, human life. Um, a, a terrific performance, terrific central performance, and um, I, I understand. <laughs> I understand why it's called one of the best films ever. <laughs> so the lead actor was at Takashi Shimura. Very powerful performance again. Um, re- really wonderful. I have I had I don't have much words other than uh, it's really. I'm so glad I got to catch it. Um, so um, you've seen other films as well, but we have two films overlapped. Uh, which film would you like to discuss first? We're talking about Europa and Oharu. Yes, which one? Um, well, uh, I think either might make sense for kind of different reasons. I mean, you know, I was thinking about Oharu a little bit because of the ending, and that um, that it's not a movie like Forbidden Games at all, but it takes you on this kind of long journey of what this woman's life has been, and then at the end, it's like I'm just getting out of here. We don't know where she's going or if it's gonna work out for her but it's a choice against like the where she finds herself um but that's maybe you know so there's that but there's also you you maybe it makes more sense to start with Europa just because you Europa 51 because you mentioned um you know already Rossellini is thinking beyond neorealism a little bit in the way he makes this movie and like this is a very different film from you know something like Open City just you know five or six years before this but it does have that connection of wartime and that the environment in the film and both kind of the physical environment, but the emotional environment wouldn't, you know, are inextricable from it being a post-war environment. So maybe, maybe that makes more sense to look at first as a transition from Forbidden Games. All right. So Forbidden, uh, Forbidden Games, Europe, Europa 51 from Italy, directed by Roberto Rossellini. Um, this is about a, a woman named uh, Irene, who is a, Who's married to George, a very wealthy couple. Um, they have a son named Mikele, who, um, trigger warning, uh, attempts suicide. Um, and because of that attempt, uh, he also dies. But that becomes a trigger for her to start um, caring about the people around her as opposed to just being um, part of the elite <laughs> with the parties that they're going through with, his, with, his, with her husband. Um, yeah, this is one of, I think this is Ingrid Bergman's first film since Strombo, is it? Or maybe not. 
first one than Stromboli? Is that what you're saying? Is is it? I think so. Yeah. Um, I want to know your thoughts first, and then I would ask something. But what do you think of Europa Fifty One? I loved Europa Fifty One, and I feel like I'd heard so much more about Stromboli and Voyage to Italy, and this was the one that I didn't know anything about, even this, except knowing it was part of this. I mean, I know they made five films together, but these are the three that Bergman and Rossellini in their collaborations tend to get held up as the core of their collaboration. And I didn't know anything about the plot. I didn't know anything about the premise. Um, so I was just struck by how the surprises and the turns and the twists and the reframings and the new context just keep on coming. And that, um, and I, I was extraordinarily moved by this movie. Um, and its refusal to think unilaterally or simplistically about any of the choices that she makes at different times. Like the only thing that's clear is that the life that she starts in is not doing much good for her or for anybody, but in her search for an alternative, which sometimes she knows she's picking a flawed alternative. And sometimes she thinks she's picking something that's going to be the answer. Um, and sometimes I think she even thinks it is the answer. I mean, you asked about faith before with forbidden games and, you know, Europa 51 is a story that once faith comes into it, I think she really relates to it as a, as a comprehensive salvation. And I'm not sure about that, even, even setting aside how people treat her once she embraces the faith that she embraces. So whether it's communism, whether it's labor, whether it's uh, sort of good works, whether it's um, religious feeling, like all of those attempts to find something that will orient you away not just from like the shallowness of the life that she was leading but from the I don't think it's the kind of movie where it's just about like my child died and it was so sad that I had to think of something else it's like my child was like 10 and fucking hated me so much that he threw himself down a stairwell and you know talk about kids you know being young but having a point of view like that little boy knew what he thought was wrong with his parents and that I can't imagine that level of rebuke um, from somebody that young. So to me, that's even they're they're not extricable. But even more than the suicide, it's the critique that somebody who was ten understood what was wrong with her life and she didn't. Um, that seems to kind of reorient her, but also sort of derange her at the same time. Um, so I was just hanging on every minute of that movie. I thought it was incredible. What did you think? I was very impressed with how I was very much invested in it. Um, because I go back in time, I I think I'm starting to get closer to the very <laughs> um, Italian neorealist, you know, the more, um, not genuine, but the more early beginnings of it or what, before it mutated more to more um, melodrama. Mm. With this one, um, I don't know, it... it, it it mined that story. It helped that story. That it was the kind of storytelling that it had. Um, Ingrid Bergman just fits well and also a bit sticks out in a really wonderful way. Um, this is the kind of film that I would say is like not polished, but that helps it a lot mm -hmm. because it makes it more immediate. Mm -hmm. Um not just emotionally, but in, in some weird way, it brings you closer to the world. Um, it's a film that is interested in 
complicated emotions and the film gets to those not through complicated moments but kind of like Forbidden Games invested in side characters small moments observing but it also kind of funnels in the more the bigger melodrama and it works well um I listen I I would admit that um, my favorite Ingrid Bourbon performance for now is uh, Autumn Sonata. Um, my image of the Ingrid Bourbon around this time is Casablanca, which she was really wonderful, but it's not necessarily her story. Um, Gaslight, which was very faded in my memory, and a Joan of Arc, which, um, yeah. So with this, it, it showed me like that, dramatic intensity of Ingrid Bergman that I saw in Autumn Sonata I saw in her early form and it was just like um it was like it was a it was a reinvention of my connection with Ingrid Bergman and it was I'm just really now looking forward to more of her Italian neorealist works especially with her collaborations with um Rossellini I forgot the name Rossellini because it it's so complicated, and yet the form of the film makes it appear that it's not. It makes it almost like, um, you know, I've been using the word, but it, it feels raw, and but, and I, I don't know how, because I know the Italian New Realist has the, uh, the filmmaking in that part kind of get improvisational at times. Maybe this was not, but I don't know. Formalistically speaking, also emotionally, it just feels closer. It did. It didn't. It doesn't feel aged, and it it feels fresh and I don't know, um, full of life. Um, uh, now I want to ask because you said like you know, you feel like this film is like where Rosalina starts to kind of move away from the more I don't know fundamentals of Italian era. Is that? I think he's already doing that a yeah. little bit in in Stromboli, even, but but here even more so. And just that mm-hmm. that the, I mean, he I think himself may have originated the term rubble films when he was talking about the films like Paisan or or Rome Open City. That that the whole the background really is the foreground in those movies. That like the the stories are powerful and they're concerted and there's a lot of strategy to them, but it's also about showing you the environment of what these devastated cities look like um, and what stories are possible in a ruined environment like that. And what else might be possible if we're going to rebuild something else. And, um, and that's still important to the way that even a movie like this one is very attentive to the different um, environments that exist, but, it's not just that like some of those environments still look as devastated as they probably did five or six years ago, but some of them look like this is mass industry trying to kind of move in. And this is what it looks like when a whole neighborhood is trying to be rehabilitated. And this is a part of the city where like people actually haven't suffered that much. And so you're getting a, a bigger, I think, swath of of what things look like. But there's also so much, um, I agree with you that, that I don't know either what the filming situations were in terms of like how these scenes were devised. I know he tended to not work with completely settled scripts, but it whether it was arrived at through technique or through genuine experience, it really feels like Ingrid Bergman is often walking into an environment that she is taking in for the first time or does not know what the house of this woman with six kids is going to feel like or does not know 
what this factory is about and what she is possibly supposed to do in it. And, um, and there are all kinds of things that, that feel like they're point of view shots from her perspective until she walks into them, or they feel like they're just master shots and establishing shots, but then they do turn out to be subjective. Like, I think the film is often playing with our own sense of whether this is, um, what she's learning and figuring out and what we're learning and figuring out and when we're wrong and when we're right. And, um, and some of those scenes are so heightened, you know, like those, those shots of like the factory machinery just turning. I mean, in a way yes. that is like, um, you know, like direct realism. This is what it looks like when these machineries are active, but it's also kind of lifted to the plane of abstraction or something. It's just like, this is like a platonic ideal of industry. Um, and she's relating to it as like a monolith that she doesn't even know where to start. Um, not as like a human scene that she has some idea how to enter. And so I think that combination of what you said about neorealism, but with the kind of heightened language of melodrama and with somebody who's making a really concerted choice to not only depart from Hollywood for a while, but from a Hollywood acting technique and yet brings that with her and he's interested in playing with it. So like there's all this. Um, and then once it starts taking shape as something like a saint's life um, that 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 too is happening in direct conjunction with the other people in the film who she sees herself as serving or joining, but it's also a parable in some way. Um, so that's a lot for one film style to have to accommodate. And I just can't believe that they did it. It's brilliant. And yeah. I, I, um, I, I, I love this form of, now I'm looking forward to more Italian realist stuff. And a part of me really wished, like some of the beloved Hollywood actresses of the time, had this opportunity to really like sink their teeth into this kind of storytelling without like removing the artifice and just like getting into drama without the manufactured feel of like a melodrama like what Ingrid Ingrid like Bergman had was afforded to with this. Um, it, it, <laughs> the more I talk about it, the more I think about it. I think it's brilliant, and I am looking forward to seeing more of Italian realism and how. Um, and also Bergman's works from this time. It's um, uh, this is my this is my thing, and also like early Giulietta Messina, <laughs> she yeah. is phenomenal. Um, I'm in love with her in Knights of Cabiria, and uh, it's really nice to see her. Oh, and also one thing that I would add before I like move to the next film, Ingrid Bergman just feels so present physically in mm -hmm. these scenes. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, she is. I I'm just trying to think of the scenes where she was like entering a room. Like I said, the factory, she entered the factory. Her sticking out is just, you know, it's, it's, it's brilliant casting. It's Ingrid Bergman being in her, like in her element and Roberto Rossellini just knowing how to capture all that. It's all, it's magic come, it's magic that comes from the seemingly ordinary. I, I don't know how to describe it. I, I am thrilled. Which brings me to the next film. Mm -hmm. The Life of Oharu from Japan, directed by Kenzi Mizuguchi. If, for a quick summary, it is about um, the daughter of a royal samurai who has a passionate romance with um, a, a commoner. And then when they were found out, um, her lover was executed while she was banished. And she was, and her whole forced. family finished, not just her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, sorry, and her family, and she was um, forced into prostitution. 
Um, what do you think of this film? Well, she's forced into a lot of things, right? Like there's a, yeah. there's the, <laughs> it's like trying to find, um, where is the safest port in the storm for a woman who's probably discovering how big her problem is as time is going on from like, I've been banished from the palace and, and the movie starts, she's already looking older and more haggard and is clearly working as a prostitute. Um, and a, a, a street walking prostitute is not somebody in a, you know, in any kind of organized or system, you know, for better or worse. Um, so we know what maybe rock bottom is going to look like. And then we kind of go back and cover a lot of this, but then there's more that happens after where we started also, but um, the different kinds of sex work, whether it's being um, a, a prostitute left to her own devices or a courtesan or being a concubine or being a wife or being a nun um like the things that that seem like the road you know the what's not available to her when she's working in sex work of these different kinds um or is conscripted into patriarchy of these different kinds like those don't go that much better either and sometimes it's because of of circumstance and accident and sometimes it's because those institutions have their own problems as well and um so I did feel maybe, and this is just a taste issue, I guess, like compared to um, Europe 51 and even Forbidden Games where it just seems like almost anything could happen next. Like this movie is about how a certain kind of entrapment within patriarchy is gonna keep following this woman almost no matter what happens, but it, 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 maybe on purpose knows what it wants to show us and continues to show us that. And I did not always think I was sort of learning more um, about the character or her circumstances as it continued to unfold in a way that something like Sancho the Bailiff, which I think is his next movie. No, Ugetsu is his next movie, but like the Sancho was the first one I ever saw and just felt like that was another experience of like, why <laughs> every 30 seconds, you know, I could be surprised not just by a plot point, but by a sound or by an image or a performance. And this is a different movie than that um, on by design. Um, maybe a little a little less galvanizing to me, um, just in its kind of holding to a pretty stable thesis throughout. And I think it's lined between sort of like being compassionate toward her and just pitying her. Um, I'm still thinking about that relationship in the movie, but. I mean, it's quite impressive. And, and I understand why there are people who elevate it as highly as they do. I, I wonder what you thought about it. Um, so basically, it's thrilling. Mm -hmm. um, this one is the first one. This I, I saw this and then Europe 51 before this podcast. So there is a strong contrast because the, the life of horror, I feel, is very methodical, very structured, very... Um, calculated and how it moves and how not even not just the camera moves but on how the story moves yeah. and um, the build up is in its slowness mm -hmm. and because it's very studied now I'm look oh I, I was like kind of wired to look look closer and not an anticipating what is how what's gonna happen next but on what is happening right now. Yeah. Um, yep. And 
I think that is more on, you know, because of the attention that it had in this is the way it, it wanted to tell the story. Um, really wonderful performance also in the center. I'm also not sure about the relationship with the character with the film. I'm also still figuring it out. Um, because a part I've been, I think I've said this in Nights of Kabiria in, in that there is um, there should be like a clarity on like does the misery of in this case a female character does the misery does the film focusing on the misery of the character make it misogynistic for example or is it just its way um, oh, or is it independent of that um, is the misogyny depicted in the film you know the delineation should be um, is it clear or it gets muddled with this one, I'm still not 100% sure. But for what it's worth, it was really hard for me to be thrilled by something that is decided this slow oh. and very methodical in mm-hmm. what it, it, how it wanted to tell the story. Um, I'm still trying to process if I was entirely with the film's wavelength Maybe because I wasn't prepared for um, how it moved, um, but I am thrilled and I I I am glad that you know when you mentioned that this is gonna be like one of the films that you will watch like oh, okay, but then I saw it like oh wow I I kind of like Euro fifty one like I want more not just of this kinds of story but I want more of what was happening at the time because this is in a way um, part of the genesis of like how film form from different countries evolve and it's interesting because like it's a weird journey when you go back but you see it's roots after where um where it's now but it is quite the experience and it is a sad story but i also didn't feel that it was wallowing in its sadness Mm. it just understood how tough her life was without necessarily always oh it's tough but I'm also not sure if does it always um, p- uh, pay off, but you know, regardless of that, I'm not still I'm still not decided on that. But it's pretty wonderful. Yeah, I would. I mean, I there are moments where I think we get a little close to a wallow, or where it just feels like because the logic of the sequences has consistently been this will not work either. And given what we see by the end of the movie, we kind of know. So even when things seem like they might be going better, I think it's a productive question to think about like, what about this that superficially seems like a rescue is doomed to fail. But there is also a sense of just like waiting for the bottom to drop out almost no matter what they're showing you, which I think sometimes undermines some of the scenes if it seems so predetermined that that it's just stations of the cross um, on the way to more suffering. I didn't I didn't experience it at all as misogynist. Um, and I, I do think that not just the compassion for the character, but the willingness to show when she's not always making the decision that would make things easier for her or when she's walking into something that she probably ought to be observing is not gonna be um, in her own best interest that the film does not set itself up um to imagine that we that she has any better choice or that we know better than she does or that she has to be perfect for us to feel sorry for her um there's a there's a slight limitation to me around like offering a film that is mostly about feeling sorry for this person over and over again as the film 
puts her through the circumstances that make us feel pity for her that I, I think I've seen him be more flexible in his orientation toward a story that he wants to tell. But it, it is quite um, magnificent in, in a lot of ways. And the reason I was so intent on watching it was because I've met people before who say, of all the movies I've ever seen, this is my favorite. Like, wow. Um, so I just wanted to see it for a while. Um, and now we have. Do you think the framing device kind of affected how you were trying, like in, in terms of expectations with a story? It didn't have to because I, you know, I think there are ways in which like you can follow a zigzaggy path toward where you think, you know, mm -hmm. the character's going to end up. And um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I had, like you, it's like, I've just seen this in the last couple of days. So I'm still kind of turning it over in my mind. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about a story like um, the house of mirth, for example, which in a lot of ways is pretty different, but is, um, if people know the novel or if they know the Jillian Anderson movie, um, I don't think that story would benefit from knowing how this is going to go for her necessarily, because there are things that look like escape hatches along the way that turn out not to be for different reasons. Um, and I think there's a different sort of tension that's generated from not having, from it sort of seeming like we're going to wind up lower than we were socially, but it may not be a dungeon. Um, and this one doesn't really give you much room for that. Although the end is a little bit complicated. Um, so I'll give it, I'll give it that. It's also sounding like by advancing the things that I have reservations about, I'm probably sounding like I like the movie less than I did. I, I really did admire it a lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. So um, you've seen also like three other films. I just um, like, a, I want to hear the, your quick thoughts on these films. Um, well, the white cheek yeah yeah just like one i'll bring up right away was um the ozu movie flavor of green tea over rice which i just watched last night and i wanted to to see uh mizuguchi and a kurosawa and an ozu in close succession and and just take in the varieties of their styles and even though it's clear over time that like there's no one style that adheres to any of those filmmakers they're they're pretty elastic but i didn't you know I haven't spent that much time with Ozu. And when I've watched Ozu movies, they've been like Tokyo Story and things where I kind of knew what I was going to get. And that I think people associate as like his emblematic aesthetic. And this is like all but a romantic comedy. Um, and it's, yeah, I, who, who knew? And it's about three women at the beginning of the movie who are trying to figure out what lie they need to tell to one of their husbands so they can go off and like drink sake at a hot springs and like, you know, make an excuse for why they're going to be gone. Even though he's so out of it, he probably wouldn't notice if they just went. And, um, and then there's a fourth woman who gets dragged along because their first lie gets exposed as a lie in front of them. And then it's also about this group of men, although there are fewer relationships among the men than there are among the women. Um, and it's just sort of a series of entanglements um, that's pretty lighthearted, but also is concerned that marriage doesn't necessarily always serve everyone, but that there might also be a way to redeem a marriage that's been running out of fuel for a long time. Um, so I don't even, you know, there are, there are so many, all of these metaphors would be wrong, but if you imagined Ozu making like a Nicole Holofcener movie, you wouldn't be far off in some ways. Um, or watching three women go to, go to a baseball game and be like, girl, isn't that your husband with some other woman? And she's like, yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Like, are you going to divorce him? Like, no, I'm going to make him buy me clothes. Fuck that. Um, 
and I just didn't know this was in Ozu's wheelhouse. And um, it's also pretty wild to watch a movie that is a kind of ensemble romantic comedy drama that is certainly has some camera movement and certainly has some different visual strategies, but almost every dialogue scene is just shot reverses between like static close-ups of people looking directly into the camera, which should have felt really maddening after a while, but um, starts to feel <laughs> like a kind of interesting way to continue to examine each of these people and where they're coming from. So that was just a big surprise to me. I, um, I'm sure for people who know Ozu, even medium, much less people who know Ozu well, they're like, yeah, he made a lot of things that are different from each other. But I, I was naive about this and had expected something much more somber and um, restrained, I guess. Um, and, and if you want to watch it alongside these Italian and French movies that we watched together about post-war, um, it's coherent in that way, too, that you're sort of watching a, a attempted um, Japanese middle class in a changing environment and very much informed by their recent war experience, try to invent other social codes and aggressively modernize in certain ways, um, which had been happening even before the war, but they're, they're kind of gratifying to take in as a set. So that's my pitch for flavor of green tea over rice. I am surprised. I am surprised. I was, when I was thinking of this title, I was like, I'm preparing myself. I'm like, okay, Ozu. Yep. Um, yep. Out of the three, Kurosawa, Mizuguchi, Ozu, which filmmaker do you prefer? Which well, director's works do you prefer? I'm sorry. I wish I had seen more from all of them. Ozu. Mizuguchi mm. is the one I, I've responded to the most mm. um, and is the only one that I haven't, that I've liked everything that I've seen. Um, what? Sometimes with Kurosawa and Ozu, I have like kind of hits and misses, I guess. But there's also huge, like I've never seen any of Kurosawa's noirs. And I have several friends who say, you got to let go of the samurai stuff. You got to like the best stuff are the noirs. And um, and uh, that's all still new for me. One day I'll make more time. What about for you? I've, I've mostly seen late Kurosawa. Hmm. This is my first Mizuguchi, and I haven't seen any Ozu. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, good luck to me. I'm looking forward for Rashomon. Yeah. Um, all right, how about the White Sheik? So, you'll um, be excited to know that Julieta Messina is in the White Sheik and is a walk-on brief part near the end of the movie as Kabiria. So, you've met, you meet this character five years before she makes Knights of Kabiria. Um, and but it's a small role even though the credits imply it's going to be a bigger one uh i didn't actually know it was his first feature which i guess it is and oh, it's wow. a comedy about uh a couple who have just gotten married who are headed into rome um for something like a honeymoon and um the husband has no idea that the wife is only really excited about going because she thinks it's going to put her near the film studio where she can go try to meet the actor of her dreams who she has sent three letters to and who has responded once. And so she's trying to figure out when can I ditch my new husband to go meet this actor, which she does. Um, but that doesn't go the way it's supposed to. And then he's having to improvise and explain to his whole family who showed up to meet his new bride who's gone. Um, so it's, it's a lark 
And it's also a story about like, you know, that's the kind of thing that had there been nominees, I'm sure the Academy would have liked it. It's a sort of lighthearted movie about movie making and about marriage and um, the kind of thing that in different iterations they would nominate a million times um, later in the future. I think it was not received so well at the time. I think the Italian press thought this was a little bit um, lightweight compared to things like what Rossellini was doing. Um, but it also shows you an Italian cinema that is cognizant of its recent investments in neorealism, but is by no means limited to them. And this is a kind of romantic farce fable. So um, if that sounds like your thing, you should watch it. I want to see more fun Fellini. Um, I'm not always in fun with him, but you know, <laughs> we're good. Um, how about the last one, Cascador? That was another one that I was surprised by because people talk about it. I had thought it was a noir um, and that I knew uh -huh. it was about a kind of conspiracy of men. And then Simone Signoret is this important woman who links several of the men and whom they're competing for. And maybe she's deciding which one she's going to, you know, cast her a lot with. But I had no idea. It's all set in the 19th century and is basically bringing noir themes and entanglements and rivalries and tropes into French historical period. And um, we were talking before about how Forbidden Games, I'm, I'm guessing would have been the kind of French movie that at least is sort of a bridge into where French cinema was about to go. Um, and a repudiation of all of this like costume drama stuff that made like Truffaut and the others so impatient. Um, they loved this movie and this director because like he went right into the heart of costume drama and turned it into film noir and the, the existential weight of it and the um, kind of lethal agendas of people feel totally plot like it's not a put on it feels like it's part of this world of decades and decades ago but it also feels very contemporary. So I just watched it this morning it's still kind of settling with me. I, she was not my favorite part of it I have to say in the first third of the movie. I think requires you to be a little more taken in by her than I felt like I was. But the men are really uh, complicated and charismatic and interesting. Um, and as their competitions with each other become more central, I think the movie gets even richer. I have never seen a Simon Senior performance. So in a way I'm kind of like, okay, with not having to catch up with it because I, I really want Room at the Top to be my first. <laughs> and um, yeah, but is it, is it also a comedy no no not at all no no, no it, it is it feels like a noir even though that's not what it is um yeah uh, and in a way if you uh, that room at the top was my first scene to write performance too and like you know start wherever you want but like if you in a way she kind of does the reverse of the ingrid bergman right like and cuts her teeth on all these other um styles of film in france many of which were thrillers um and then gets interested in what would it be like to try to do what Hollywood does instead of the Bergman. I mean, Bergman had another career before Hollywood, obviously, but like, you know, becoming so famous based on Hollywood and then saying, I think I have the leeway to write Roberto Rossellini a letter and say, I'll do anything you want. What do you want to do? I need to vary this up. So they're, they're kind of interesting reverse cases too. So it makes yeah. Sense. Oh yeah. So I am looking forward to her. Yeah. So Nick, have you seen forbidden games and these films and it's, it's really weird because when it, usually i would ask like oh do you think it was a deserving winner blah 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 and then you compare it to the other nominees right. it's really weird about this time because you just awarded one but 
How about Forbidden Games? It was the uh, one awarded, chosen over these other films. How do you think this fares? Is it is it a deserving honorary award? I think it's in the top tier of movies that have won this award, whether competitively or not. I think it's way, way, way up there. Um, I think they could hardly have chosen better because Europa 51, I think, is so incredible. I'm not sure which of those I would have chosen, but um, it's a rare case where you had this, you know, it's like you said, when we don't have nominees, we get to imagine that all the actual best stuff was in contention. <laughs> we know from years with nominees, that's rarely true, but um, uh, I don't know where I would fall between those two, but, but you know, the award rarely goes to a better movie than Forbidden Games, so I think they ought to feel proud about that. I was going to say something, but I forgot. Uh, but, you know, I, I am completely, I agree. Forbidden Games is a very special film. Um, oh, now I remember, you know, we're always thinking about, you know, the best or beginning in contention until the country started submitting things and like, Oh no, they didn't submit it right. But you know, with this one, I Europa fifty one is staggering work. Um, Ikiru um, touched me in a deep way. The life of Oharu um, stunned me. And for but Forbidden Games, it feels like it feels like a winner in this category. Of course, there wasn't a winner then, but it feels like something that at the time represents something more than than you know and it still does now weirdly you know we are in 2022 and this still resonates and it still feels like um, a vital piece of art so even if um the other films i really did appreciate uh, i'm good <laughs> i'm good with forbidden games yeah. and uh, i'm so i'm so glad i'm so glad that um i'm kind of ending this podcast on this series of films and with Forbidden Games being one of them. So Nick, again, thank you so much for joining me in this episode. I didn't know what to expect with Forbidden Games, but I just want, really wanted to have you back on the show and it was a great film. So it was a really great pick. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a treat. Thanks so much for having me and thanks to everybody who listened. Yeah. And can you tell again, your listeners, where can they find you on the internet? Sure, you can go to nick-davis.com for a lot of older writing and for anything from the last year or two, you'd probably want to go to letterbox.com where my username is um, nicksflickpicks, N-I-C-K-S-F-L-I-C-K-P-I-C-K-S. It's a tongue twister, but I'm stuck with it. Um, and you can find reviews of newer stuff. There you go. And you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. This podcast at One Inch Barry. This podcast is everywhere. I can Patreon pages up and running. 2020 retrospective is going i think this sunday there's something gonna come up there's something that's gonna come up in this podcast it's a special one i think um again i'm wishing you all well oh this is the seventh final season so i'm i'm glad that you're still sticking around this is the midpoint of the season again thank you for all your support again I'm wishing you all well this is a goodbye for now and together let us break this one inch barrier <laughs>